Today's reading is Genesis 21, 1 through 3, and 22, 1 through 14. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The word of the Lord. This uh, fall our series that's going to lead us into to, to Advent and then the Gospel of John. In the new year, it's, it's through the narrative lectionary. And so the purpose of the narrative lectionary, a four-year cycle of readings, is, is to make sure that uh, as the church we're reading some of the most central, core, important stories in Scripture. And this is undeniably one of them. One of the most important and most difficult passages there is. And this morning, the, the passage began, though, not with Genesis 22, but with Genesis 21, the birth of Isaac to Sarah. And the name Isaac means he laughs or, or laughter. And that's the name that the Lord gave to Isaac because when he told Abraham and, and Sarah that, that she was to conceive and bear a son, they laughed. They laughed because it seemed to them to be a joke. They were too old, too old to have a child. Too, too old to um, experience this great joy. And they laughed because they had heard these promises before. These promises that Sarah would be the mother of a great nation. Father, uh, Abraham would be the father of a great nation. And that through their child, through this seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
And they laughed at themselves because they had trusted in this promise, a promise, it seemed, was never going to be fulfilled in the way that they hoped that it would. They laughed the laughter of, of bitter disappointment that seemed to be making a mockery of them, right? The joke was on them in their, in their old age, laughing at themselves because they were so foolish to, to keep on believing, like the same reason we laugh at, at Charlie Brown when he trusts Lucy that this time, right, this time she's not going to pull the football away. They laughed because it seemed like God was a, a telling a joke, and they were the punchline. And so they laughed at the absurdity of it all. To, to them, God was acting like a comedian. Now, I would be remiss if I did not note that uh, the world this week lost a source of great laughter. Uh, Norm MacDonald passed away at the age of 61, and, and Norm was a very interesting character. He, he considered himself a, uh, a devout Christian. But Norm, he was the master at pointing out the simple yet profound absurdities of life, of making things that, that, you know, objectively are not funny, funny. But they are funny because they're absurd. You know, the, the role, objectively, the role of Germany in the two world wars of the last century, that's not funny. But it is funny when Norm says, you know, North Korea, people are scared of North Korea. That doesn't scare me. Iraq that doesn't scare me. You know what country scares me? Germany. And he says, you know, in the last century, I don't know if you're a student of history, but uh, in, the, in the last century, uh, Germany said, you know, about 100 years ago, we're going to go to war. You know who they picked as their opponent? The world. <laughs> and you think, Germany versus the world, it's, you know, the world's going to win. No. Germany almost won. Then about 30 years later, Germany says, you know, we're going to go to war again. Who did they pick as their opponent this time? The world. So funny. And there was nothing funny about O.J. Simpson's double homicide of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goleman. But Norm made people laugh by pointing out the absurdity of the defenses that were offered uh, uh, by this man who was clearly guilty with endless jokes on Saturday Night Live uh, at, uh, at Weekend Update. And one of the simplest and best was the, the Saturday after the verdict. He starts Weekend Update, and O.J.'s picture flashes, and Norm says, Murder is now legal in the state of California. And so I think all laughter at its core is a response to some kind of incongruity between the, the way things are and, and the way that we, we think we know they are or, or we imagine that they are or we hope they are. An incongruity between what's being said or, or what's happening and the truth. And so God is the God of the infinite incongruity between what seems reasonable and possible for us and what's possible for him. And there's lots of different responses we can give to, to that incongruity between, you know, what we understand as rationally possible and what God can do. You know, we can, we can just disbelieve and say it's, it's absurd because it's not possible. We, we can doubt. We can weep. We can laugh like or like Abraham and Sarah, but, but finally, we can also believe. And so that's the, the choice that, that we're faced with every day. In the face of the absurd, God invites Abraham to believe, or in this passage, we could say that God tests to see if Abraham believes. So the idea that Sarah would give birth to a son, it seemed like a joke, and yet it happens. 
And God promised explicitly, not just in general, but that it would be through this specific child, Isaac, that his promises to Abraham of progeny, land, a blessing for the nations, you know, that they would be carried forward. And so Isaac was the seed, the son, the descendant of Abraham. He was really the physical manifestation, the incarnation of these promises that God had made to Abraham. And then we turn to chapter 22. And what seemed like a joke just becomes a nightmare. God commands, or does he ask? There's actually some ambiguity in in the language there. But it doesn't really matter if it's a command, if it's a request, if it's an entreaty or or whatever. He, He tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. And so this is really one of the most challenging chapters in all of Scripture. You know, some people, especially in, in kind of modern uh, biblical scholarship and criticism, who, who the emphasis is on reading against the text, so kind of pushing back. So let's say this, this passage presents, you know, God as a, as a, as a child abuser. But before the, 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 you know, kind of postmodern era, the great modern philosophers have wrestled with this passage. Immanuel Kant, he was highly critical of Abraham. He said that, that, that Abraham should have known not to trust that this voice was coming from God because it was so clearly in contradiction to the demands of practical reason, which are universal, which, which say that you're to care for one's family and, and preserve and protect innocent life. And Soren Kierkegaard most famously wrote a, a book that is almost entirely a meditation upon this passage called Fear and Trembling where he commends Abraham as this singular figure in history. He calls him a true knight of faith who teaches us that we must go beyond ethics because he's involved in a complicated philosophical argument of the 19th century but which said that, you know, you need to go beyond religion to ethics. And he goes, no, 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 there's no going beyond religion. You need to go beyond ethics. You need to go to religion and reach what, what Kierkegaard calls the teleological suspension of the ethical. I don't know what that means. But it was a highly influential idea. And I'm not going to parse, you know, what Kant or Kierkegaard or some other person have to say about this passage, but with all their profound wrestling with it reveals and illustrates that there's something mysterious about it. Something about it that refuses to be reduced to kind of simple moralizing lessons that, that a preacher might want to draw from it. Kierkegaard, he condemns such efforts. He says, if, if you do that, you're doing a profound disservice to this passage. He says, you know, if some pastor says, well, what this passage is really about is being willing to sacrifice something that you really love for your faith in God. He says, if someone took this passage literally, one of your parishioners went home and tried to kill their child, you, you would condemn that person as a monster. So he says, why don't we condemn? Why do we commend Abraham? Because I believe we should. And so simple condemnation nor simple commendation of some, you know, moralizing principle. That's not the answer. Something bigger is happening here. So it's a passage that invites really deep reflection and meditation. It rewards it. It invites multiple interpretations. Its ambiguity is really a feature. It's not a bug. And, 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 and there's some, some kind of irresolvable tensions, even when we reach the end, that, that point causes us to look kind of beyond this passage for understanding it. So as we move through this passage this morning, we're going to look at the test that God gave Abraham, the, the call of God, the tension, the, the profound tension in the passage, 
And finally, it's resolution. So first, there's the test. And Scripture is clear on this point. God tested Abraham. Now, there's no escaping it. No saying, saying, well, sort of something else was happening here. And so there's kind of two things about the test. One, the test is good. We, as the, the listener, as the audience of this passage, we know that, that, you know, kind of from the beginning, that something bad isn't going to happen. It's just a test. But Abraham doesn't know. So we know something Abraham doesn't. But also, a test is not the same thing as a temptation. A test is when you prove something, a demonstration of something. So on a math test, you prove whether or not you know the math. A spelling test, you prove whether or not you know how to spell certain words. A driving test, you prove whether or not you know how to drive or operate a vehicle. A test of strength, you prove can you lift it or not. So what is it exactly that through this test, Abraham is supposed to prove? Well, we can skip ahead to the end to to get the answer where the angel of the Lord says, I now know that you fear God. So the test is to see then if Abraham fears God. This is a callback to our our Proverbs series that we did all this summer. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So fearing God, that's the test. And so the test is then, what will Abraham do when he's faced with the, the, the contradiction between the promises of God and the commandment? God, right? These promises that are literally embodied in his son Isaac and and this command to sacrifice him. What do you do with that? And when Kierkegaard looks at this, he sees this as, as showing the necessity of taking a leap of faith. He says there's no kind of rational reconciliation of this. And, and, and so in the face of this absurdity, you're called to take the leap of faith. But I actually think there's another line of interpretation that demonstrates not the irrationality of this command, but, but the terrible rationality of the test that God devised. There's a, he's not a biblical scholar, but he's a, a, a very sensitive reader of Scripture. Um, he was a professor at the University of Chicago. His name is Leon Cass. And he wrote this really wonderful book. It's a, really a philosophical commentary on the book of, of Genesis called The Beginning of wisdom. I, I commend it to you. It's, it's, it's just this really delightful, thoughtful book, uh, an exposition of, of Genesis. And so as he is going through this passage, uh, he, he frames it this way. He says, the test of whether Abraham fears God is really a test that's going to prove whether, you know, Abraham is following God out of selfish ambition or out of his love for God. Because at this point, it's, it's only one who follows God for God's own sake and not for the sake of what God is going to do for him that, that would make him worthy to be a father of multitudes. That's what Abraham's name literally means, a father of multitudes. And so the one who follows God for his own sake, instrumentally for what he can get out of it, ultimately that person will be a malignant narcissist who will invariably sacrifice the present and future of others for himself. And we know throughout history, we just see that, that, that those who are, are willing to sacrifice others, the lives of others, uh, the future of others for themselves wreak almost unchecked destruction upon the earth. So here's what Cass says, I'll, I'll quote it. He says, here then are two ways to formulate the implicit and utterly, un, uh, in, utterly intelligible question being of asked, asked of Abraham in this final test. Will you, Abraham... Walk reverently and wholeheartedly before God 
even if it means sacrificing all the benefits promised for such conduct. Do you, Abraham, fear and revere God more than you love your son, and through him your great nation, your great name, great prosperity, and even more than you desire the covenant with God? Horrible though it is to say so, the test God devises is perfect. For only if Abraham is willing to do without the covenant and as proof is willing to destroy it himself out of awe, reverence, fear for the covenanter can he demonstrate that he merits the covenant and its promised blessings. So the stakes for Abraham are high with this test. But they're just as high for God. Because really, as we enter into the the, the patriarchal narrative, God is risking kind of everything on this man and his family. This is who God is choosing to to partner with to bless the world. And so the question this passage faces down, you know, is not just can Abraham trust God, but can God trust Abraham? Now, closely related to this test is the call. And all the way back in Genesis 12, when God first met Abraham, there was a call without warning. God speaks to Abraham and says, you know, go. Go from your country and your kindred and your home to the land that I will show you. And he ends up showing him this land under the oak of Moreh. In chapter 22, the call again is to go, to leave. Go to the land of Moriah. Moreh, Moriah, they sound very similar. That's not an accident. To the place in the mountains that God will tell him. And so we hear the echoes in Genesis 22 of Genesis 12. A call to leave. In Genesis 12, the call was to leave the security of his past and walk with God in the present towards a promised but uncertain future. But here the call in Genesis 22, it's it's different. It's related, but it's different. Abraham has finally received his future in the person of Isaac. And so whereas before he was called to leave, you know, his kindred, his country, his home, here he's called to sacrifice his son, his only son, the one whom he loves. A threefold call to leave, echoed by a threefold call to sacrifice. In chapter 12, it's leaving the security of the past. Here, it's leaving the certainty of the future. So, the call of faith, then, it's always to walk presently with the Lord. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago in, in the screw tape letters, when, when C.S. Lewis talks about how the present is, is, is where we most encounter God, because In the present, we can only obey the present voice of conscience, bear the present cross, receive the present grace, and give thanks for the present pleasure, and meet the current demands of mercy and of justice. So the call to walk faithfully with God in in the uncertainty, the ambiguity of the present, that's the invitation to live by faith. Faith is lived trust in God. Not merely or, or even primarily, you know, assenting to a set of mental propositions about God. God isn't an idea. God's a personal deity. There are true and false propositions about God. Better to believe the true ones than the false ones. But, but more than these propositions, it's about knowing God's character, God's attributes. And so faith in this living God is living from this knowledge. It's responding to the call of this God. Faith is living into the paradox between God's command and his promise, like Abraham. 
Faith can never be fully understood from the outside. Faith can be reasoned toward, but not all the way into, because we're not God, and we will never have every single answer we think we need, all the knowledge, all the understanding, all of the information that we want. And so we live by faith, not by explanations. All right, so we've gotten pretty far in here, and we've covered like two verses, you know, test, call. But next, I just want us to focus on this narrative and just how, how, how it builds the tension. And this is truly one of the most incredible narratives uh, in, in all of world literature. With this just economy of words, it, it takes us through this incredible journey filled with pathos. So Abraham, he receives the call to sacrifice Isaac. And so what's clear from the text itself is this came at night. And so it's some kind of dream, some kind of uh, a vision. And, and, and it tells us that he rises early the next morning, which means that Abraham didn't procrastinate. He just got right to work. And he doesn't say a word, which is kind of surprising for Abraham because all the way back a, a few chapters before when, when God had told Abraham about the, the fate that was going to befall Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham had, had, had had this debate, this dialogue with God saying, well, you know, will you not destroy it if you find a hundred righteous people? And God says, yeah, I won't, I won't do it. What about 50? And, and then they bargain all the way down to 10. If 10 righteous men could be found in it, then it wouldn't be destroyed. But here, Abraham says nothing. It says, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son. And the, the way the word order is in, in Hebrew, it's supposed to end on that word Isaac, right? It, it just stings, because this is Isaac, his son, his only son, whom he loves. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And so here we imagine Abraham splitting wood. Hard, hard work for a man who has passed his hundredth year. He didn't delegate it to his servants. He alone has received this terrible command. And so he alone has the responsibility to fulfill it. And after the party of four leaves to the place that God will show him, a journey of an uncertain length. And, and so uh, after three days... We can only imagine the words that were exchanged, how Abraham felt as finally he lifted his eyes and he saw afar that place, that horrible place just looming on the horizon. And so have you ever had something you had to do that you were really not looking forward to? Right, a meeting you knew was going to be hard, a conversation you knew that was going to end a relationship, an email that just had to be sent Until the deadline comes, you can kind of convince yourself that life is just going to, to go on, continue on. But when the time approaches, this could even be you know, moving somewhere, right? Before you have to move, before you graduate, before one of these things, you just think life is going to go on. And then you see it approaching on the horizon. And the knot in your stomach gets bigger and bigger. Your throat just gets tighter and tighter. And then they get to the moment where it's time for Abraham and Isaac to go the rest of the way together. And so this party of four, it becomes a party of two. And Abraham says to the two servants, he says, we will worship and then we will come back to you. We will come back to you. What is Abraham saying? 
right? He's going to go sacrifice Isaac. Two is going to become one. And so what is Abraham doing? Is he telling a noble lie? I mean, it's going to be obvious when he comes back by himself. And so it's really here in verse 5 that we have the first indication or a greater indication of Abraham walking by faith. He has fully committed himself to obeying God's command. Well, at the same time, he believes that this in no way nullifies God's promise to Isaac. Faith is living in that tension, embracing that paradox, carrying forward without resolution. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. Here we see for the first time most clearly Isaac, he's a type for Christ. In essence, Isaac is unknowingly carrying his own cross. So here we see that the ultimate destiny of, of the seed of Abraham, right, the one who carries forward the promise, is, is to fulfill that promise by becoming a sacrifice. And notice how Abraham keeps the, the dangerous elements in his own hand, the fire and the knife, a small gesture which is an indication of his love and his care for his son, even in this moment. And what follows are the only words, only recorded conversation between Abraham and Isaac, his beloved son, in, in, in all of Scripture. In fact, it's the first conversation between a father and a son in the Bible. And the pathos is so deep. Because Isaac's question, it haunts this passage. It's, it's naive. It's innocent. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Note the tender language, my father my son. And Abraham responds to Isaac the same way that he responded to God earlier in the passage, here I am. And the question that hangs over the entire passage and, and, and actually will continue to hang over uh, the rest of Scripture is where is the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? We have to ask, how can Abraham bear to hear this question? And, and how does he dare to answer it? And in verse 8, what's hinted at in verse 5 becomes explicit. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And here I truly believe that Abraham is not lying to Isaac. He believes that God will resolve what, what seems from a human perspective an irresolvable tension between the command and the promise. God himself will provide a way where there is no way. The author of Hebrews says that with this statement, Abraham confessed a, a belief in the resurrection of the dead, that even if Abraham did follow through with the terrible deed, that Abraham believed that God would somehow restore his son to him. Scripture tells us that Abraham is the father of all who believe because he didn't just believe in the power of a God who blesses with life, but also in the power of a God who can raise the dead. He believed in a God of, of creation and a God of redemption. So Abraham answers, and the tension rises. So they went, both of them together. And actually, that word together, it, it really means they went as one. The journey continues towards its, its seemingly inexorable conclusion. 
And this story that's now been, been, been so economical with its words and sparse with its details, it, it slows down. And so we're given here at the end almost a, a moment by moment, a play-by-play description of what follows in, in painstaking, agonizing detail. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And so we read these events unfolding step by by step in all of their horror. And in the Jewish tradition, this, this passage is called the Akedah because that's the, uh, the root of the word to bind. And so this passage is, is known in that tradition as the binding of Isaac. So there is Isaac helplessly tied to the altar. And there stands Abraham with the, the knife raised, ready to deliver the fatal blow, surely wondering what, what God was doing. He whom God had promised would be called blessed is about to become the most cursed person imaginable. And at the very height of the tension, there comes the resolution. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I now know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So for the third and final time in this passage, Abraham responds with, here I am. As the man of faith, he's always present. And so Abraham has has passed the test. He's proven that because he was willing to sacrifice everything, including the covenant with God, he's worthy of it. Christ said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Abraham lifts up his eyes again. And what does he see but a ram caught in a thicket? question was, who will provide the lamb? And so here we see not a lamb, but a ram. And what is a ram but the father of a lamb? And so the substitution here is the life of the father for the son. Because ultimately what Abraham was called to sacrifice on that altar wasn't Isaac, but himself and his own ambitions and plans for his son. And the passage ends, we didn't read it this morning, but it ends with with God repeating these promises of land and blessing and children and greatness to Abraham. But there is an ambiguity at the end. I think a tension we feel left unresolved. And as Christians, we believe that that resolution, it doesn't come on Mount Moriah, but on Mount Calvary, which actually Scripture indicates Mount Moriah was in the vicinity of Jerusalem. So it could be the same mountain. And on that same mountain, Jesus would carry the wood himself of his own sacrifice, but not unwittingly or unknowingly. And that time, that the hand of death would not be stayed. No substitution would be provided because he himself was the substitute. And that question, who will provide the lamb, is answered when John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold, the lamb of God. So God himself did provide the lamb for us. And so we too are invited to become children of Abraham. 
a people who walk by faith in the power of God to make a gracious way where there is no way, to take sinners like me and you and, and, and to make us saints and to raise us up from death to everlasting life. And before such a passage as this, there's really nothing else I can say. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.